I think a, a prophetic voices are usually very specific. It's I remember reading this article like a decade ago, and it was written shortly after Oscar Romero was assassinated. They said that Oscar Romero wasn't assassinated because he called people to love and justice, because everybody says they like love and justice. It's that he was specific about what love looked like and what justice required. And so the specificity of our prophetic voices will change in each place. But there are some general things. Like I think and something that I see because of living in Minnesota is I think we, those of us who have more privileges, need to lend our voice to the rights of indigenous people for their land because I think that is um, one of America's original sins. And I think it's really a spiritual matter. Like everything that has to do with pipeline resistance is tied up in indigenous rights because it's almost always when it comes to uh, these oil pipelines, they're going across indigenous tribal treaty lands. And so I think that is a a big one, um, that understanding the cause of uh, Native Americans and the environment, like the way those two things come together is a key prophetic issue for the church today. So I will stand by you in fields of green For what is a January's done. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm Seth, your host, and January is done. That's insane. You people are amazing. So uh, over the course of January, uh, the show continues to break um, numbers uh, weekly, sometimes daily, on episode downloads and, you know, uh, Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram and the reviews. Love it. I love your intentionality and engagement, and I encourage more of it. I've enjoyed the phone calls that I've had with some of you, uh, the private Facebook messages. It is a blast to be a part of the community that has developed around these conversations, and it is a privilege to facilitate that in any way. Uh, So just a quick announcement. In February, uh, mid-February, hopefully, my goal, uh, I I plan to uh, travel to see some family, and then when I get back, I would like to intentionally engage with a handful of people uh, on some of the work of Alexander Shia, of Heart and Mind, and the Quadrados view of the gospel and kind of what that calls us to do. And so I'll post links to those uh, sign-up sheets in the show notes. And if that's something you want to do, to those that have showed interest, expect an email. And I look forward to coordinating and doing that with you. So I have a guest today on the show, a returning guest, Mark Van Steenwick. Uh, prior, we talked about you know anarchy and what that kind of looks like for a church to be subversive of a government and what it looks like for humanity to live in a church and to foster with and partner with the church in a subversive way to help be the kingdom of God. And I wanted to talk more about that with Mark. And so uh, this kind of fostered from when Oscar Romero uh, was canonized in my conversations with Paul Thomas. And Mark had said quite a few things, and we'd done some private messages. And I was like, you know, Mark, let's talk this through. I want to talk about what it looks like for people today and in the recent past of what a prophetic voice looks like. Now, I don't want to talk about it high in the sky. I want to I want to dig into the meat of it. How does it feel? What are its drawbacks? So I'm going to roll tape. Mark Van Steenwick. So 
I'm excited to have you back on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. You are on the list of less than, I can well, I can put the people on a list of one hand. I'm saying that wrong. On my hand are five fingers, and on those fingers are, good gods, this is why I don't do this on the phone. <laughs> um, so welcome back to the show. Welcome back. There have been a handful of people that have come back on the second time, and you're on that list You know, with um, Alexander Shia and Austin Fisher um, and Keith Giles, and so... Uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. So to that illustrious crew. To, yeah. Well, what do you mean by illustrious? I don't know. It just sounds impressive, it's, doesn't it? it? Well, it is. I mean, <laughs> this. I mean, this. Is, what, what do we say in the South? They're good people. They're good people. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we, don't, we don't have that saying in the North. What do you say then? Instead, we just don't say anything because we're stoic. <laughs> <laughs> so uh for those that haven't listened to our prior episode and i forget what episode it was i think it's like 24 23 we talked a lot a little bit about your political views and leanings and and that type of stuff and so kind of bring me up to speed a little bit about what you do with the center for prophetic imagination kind of what that looks like what its purpose is what that even means because center for prophetic imagination i think in america means I'm going to start <laughs> speaking in tongues or prophesying or the end of the world is next Wednesday and you did not buy your five gallon bucket yeah. of brownies yet, you know? So what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, I grew up among charismatics and Pentecostals. And so the idea of prophetic is what usually what Pat Robertson thinks that he's doing. Um, but no, like there's, I mean, part of it's a riff off this book, this classic text by Walter Brueggemann, which was, I think, just celebrated its 40th anniversary. We're not named after him, but it was part of the inspiration. The book is called The Prophetic Imagination, and he talks about this sort of the spiritual posture of prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. But then he does this wonderful thing, and all of his work throughout his life um, has been a recognition that that same spiritual posture – um, that political posture of the Hebrew prophets is part of what we ought to be about today. So, so that's part of it. But for me, the prophetic piece is this recognition that it's not just this call for justice, but it's also this call to return to uh, a full life-giving relationship with our God. Mm-hmm. And and so the nonprofit is is about that. Like, how do you nurture that sort of, uh, that sort of spirituality where, um, we don't see a separation of like, uh, loving God and loving neighbor. We recognize that as all the same work. And also that those two, I'm frustrated with this tendency just to assume that being prophetic just means like, um, any old spiritual person talking about any social justice thing. It's, it's a little bit more, more than that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that it's a spirituality and that we've lived in a society for almost 2000 years where the way that we train and nurture leadership has been uh, helping people maintain a sense of continuity with tradition 
but the prophetic impulse is about discontinuity. So like when you go to be a pastor, if you, like, so when I went to seminary, they didn't teach us about disrupting stuff. <laughs> they taught us how to maintain things. Mm-hmm. But, but, and so we ended up in this society we're in now where church folks are afraid to speak out uh, against injustice or call people broadly to repentance the way that the, at least the way the Hebrew prophets did, because we're afraid of alienating churchgoers, losing donations, pissing people off, losing our 501c3 status. And so given that that's the default setting for most seminaries and churches, I started thinking about like, how do you nurture and support people who have more of a prophetic posture to do that work? Because <laughs> no one else, it's not like there's tons of other people supporting people in that work. So that's what the Center for a Pathetic Imagination is. So I find when I call people out on, um, just to overgeneralize what I, a part of what you're saying, when I call people out on what I see, and so, you know, I, I think that honestly, the something I've learned, the, the Bible is written to people that are oppressed. And like, for instance, I was mm-hmm. recently talking with, um, uh, with Paul uh, Paul Thomas, and he sent me some stuff about Oscar Romero, and basically mm-hmm. talking about you know if we give it context for you know El Salvador there and and uh, before Vatican II, you know the priest told you what the Bible said, and here's what it says, you know there will always be the poor among you, man, just deal with it. We need your land. We're going to grow the corn. Just deal with it. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. when they translate the Bible into Spanish and people can read it for themselves, you know, I, I heard him say, well. You know, as as these poor peasant farmers, I'm pretty sure y'all lied to us. Like that's not exactly what Scripture was saying. Pretty sure it's saying that this is for me. Like you're not supposed to use this to oppress me. And so I find when I tell people that, if I see something on Facebook or Twitter or even in person, and I say, you know, that is not the way that we're called to talk to people, and that's not even the right mindset to frame things around. That I'm just called racist or politically correct or. Uh, anti-racist yeah. or whatever other slightly passive-aggressive adjective you want to assign to somebody to basically say, "Don't tell me what I can't say." So h- how do I do that? How do I? I don't even know what that looks like because I find that I either don't do it well, or I suck at it, or both. That's probably the same thing. But I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know how to do it. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I don't. I think we can get better at it. I mean, that's one of the points of uh, Brueggemann's uh, The Prophetic Imagination is that prophets uh, usually try to find the most effective means of discourse, the most clear way of basically pissing people off mm-hmm. and calling them to repentance. But at the end of the day, uh, the greatest examples of people who do this uh, failed in a sense. Like, So Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Romero was murdered while he was doing uh, giving mass. Uh, Jesus Christ was was crucified, mm-hmm. uh, and he said, like you know, any time the prophets came to you, you treated the the prophets the same way, and you killed them. So, in some ways, the prophetic thing uh, is never going to be, uh, it's never going to feel super duper successful because uh, you're going to win some people over and wake some people up, but the the weight of of oppression is such that those who benefit from unjust systems are too invested in it and they're going to want to kill you or silence you. 
and they're going to call you things. That's right now. That's what happens. They'll call you a snowflake, mm-hmm. libtard, uh, whatever it is, as a way of just quickly marking you as part of those liberal elite people who are disconnected from reality and are spouting fake news. And so I need to shut you up. However, how do you find is, and I say <laughs> I say this. So how do you how do you do that well on social media? Because as I've become friends with you quasi through social media. You do this better than I do, uh, and it may be because you're you give more thought to what it talk to what l- speaking to people in a prophetic in- prophetically engaging way looks like, because uh, that's not really what I do day in and day out. Even if I think about it, I don't really practice it, and I'm not intentional with it. And so, how do you? Yeah. What is the best way to enter into that discourse? Because most people don't talk face to face anymore. Uh, I think over. I, I would have to guess, but seven out of ten conversations no. are digital conversations, and uh, that's that's, right. that's the new norm. So, what's a good way to, I guess, speak prophetically via 140 characters or less? Because if you type longer than my iPhone screen, <laughs> I stopped reading. It was too long. Didn't read. I think it's a mixture of things. Like for me, I feel like I'm in the sweet spot when people can call me names and I won't get mad. So I think that's part of it. Like that maturing process of self-differentiation where you're, you don't take personally when people challenge your truth. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, but then also like there's this, I try to do these little habits of that's part of it is like, I still listen, listen to conservative talk radio uh, when I can have time because I want, don't want to lose scent. Like I don't want to start treating rural conservative vote white voters that supported Trump as some sort of stupid class of people who don't don't deserve my respect. Like, mm-hmm. and I get why a lot of people on the left will want to. It it pisses me off because my my family and my background is rural, poor Minnesotan. Uh, so I get like why it's easy to make these caricatures. And stereotypes of the enemy, but I think I, there has to be a certain amount of compassion, not even condescending compassion, because the truth is, like if if I believe what I'm selling, that um, God is uniquely present in the experiences of the oppressed, that also assumes that there's a unique insight that rural poor people that are white have, because it's a unique way of experiencing oppression. Mm-hmm. And like if we somehow say that just by virtue of their being white, that they're somehow part of the oppressor class in total, um, like I think that's what happens. We, we end up getting into this monolithic way of thinking where we have this stereotype of the oppressor and it's <laughs> – and we can't – we're not patient and able to look at – look, uh, there's a reason that uh, a lot of people are buying into these sort of like really crappy ideologies and it's not actually helping them. Somebody's exploiting their pain, and part of the work is not only to to trounce them intellectually, but also recognize like that pain and their feeling of alienation is real. But the solution that they're clinging to is false. What do you think some of those reasons are? You said there's reasons that people are are basically taking advantage of their fear and their pain. What are some of those reasons, or what do you what? think some of those reasons are? Reasons why they're being uh, taken advantage mm-hmm. of, or reasons why they feel angry. I mean, either really, but you, yeah. I mean, you can manipulate that fear. Um, well, I mean, this—I mean, this fear thing. Like, so, you know, back in the 1700s, there were slave uprisings that included white poor people who saw themselves as basically more having more in common with black slaves than they did with slave owners, 
And so it became advantageous for slave owners to start treating poor whites as uh, part of the same white group of people. So whiteness was largely created as a way of separating uh, divide and conquer between the the lower classes, which included slaves. Yeah. So I think that I think that's that strategy is still being employed to this day. Yeah. Right. Well, I well I agree. So I I haven't told you this, but I've said it outside, and I don't even know if it's aired on any of the episode other episode. Oh my gosh, the other episodes yet. Um, but I am at a place that I really do struggle with the day job. I'm really good at being a banker at a large bank, and I'm really struggling with it because I'm really good at it. And I also genuinely feel like I'm helping people be more financially secure. And most of the people I help are not crazy rich. Most of them are paycheck to paycheck, probably less than paycheck to paycheck, but it is fulfilling to help them. But at the same time, I know that part of what I'm doing is helping make the middle class less middle and the richer class more rich with a greater disparaging part of wealth. And I don't even know what to do with it, but I do struggle with it yeah, deeply. Um, I, but I honestly don't see myself changing because I still have a, a family to provide for. Um, yeah. It's it's a bad tension. I guess I just have to give away more money, more personal money. But that's, well, about, I mean, that's about my guilt. That's not about giving it away though. So it's still a problem. Well, I feel like we're all in some ways in a similar spot. Like even even the most righteously living like idealist people around uh, among us are somehow ensnared within the system more than they want, and I even feel like that impulse to try to like enter into a pure posture where you're not tainted with the system. I think that impulse to move towards that is actually a flawed impulse because mm-hmm. it pulls us away from people. Huh. So I mean, this is a struggle. Like I feel like we have to find a way to just just dive deeper into the into the problems and the flaws of the society around us and leverage whatever we've got. Yeah. And the problem is like <laughs> at some point like I mean this is the this is Jesus's narrative like to that he told his disciples at some point someone's got to give and he told everyone if if you're going to be in that spot choose the cross. <laughs> so <laughs> That's the good news for us. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to be in that spot, get ready some, for the pain. Bring the yeah, pain. At some point, uh, sustainability has to give way towards uh, the gospel. So what does that – so one of the questions that I sent you – actually, really the only question that I sent you ahead of this is who is doing that now? If you were to list off a handful of prophetic people – today, and I don't really care if they're alive or dead, I'd love for them to be alive, but it doesn't really matter for the conversation. What are some of those voices, not necessarily in America, but that can impact the way that you and I live in Western civilization and can impact the church and the way that we treat people? So who are some of those people and then how are they doing it? What can we learn from them? What practices can we steal, for lack of a better word? Yeah, and it's, I mean, I feel like No one's pure. Like, there's no perfect example, like, you know, besides Jesus, I guess. But, like, uh, everyone has their flaws. But you can see, you know, and I've already mentioned some of them, like Oscar Romero. Mm -hmm. I mean, his story is great. And I'm hoping now a lot of people know who he is, but a lot of people don't know his story. But now that he was sainted, maybe they'll know more. But he was was the safe bet for the Archbishop of, of El Salvador. And then he got into that spot and he started using his basically his pulpit to 
call out the government against repression of the peasant class. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and he was murdered for it. And that's why he's a saint now. Or Martin Luther King Jr., same sort of story. Uh, then you have people that weren't martyred, like uh, Dorothy Day. Uh, so she's one of the co-founders of the Catholic Worker Movement. Who she, she leveraged what she had to create space for hospitality to people who are experiencing homelessness, but then also had a big platform because people listened to her voice. And she used that platform to, to challenge the Catholic Church, her fellow Catholics, to live out their values more faithfully. And that was – she. it was a big dent that she made, but it was hard. Like she – had to sacrifice a lot of her comfort and ease in order to do that. Um, she didn't use it to build up her platform as a national speaker so that she could have a good retirement plan. Like She didn't do that. Her retirement plan was to grow old in these houses of hospitality that she helped start, and then they'd help take care of her. So th- those are some examples. Um, other people that are alive today, I feel like right now, uh, just less than a mile from me, there's a homeless encampment which Minnesota has tended not to have huge homeless encampments because it's cold. Mm -hmm. So that that tends to happen more in warmer climates. But we have hundreds of tents nearby of people who were all homeless before, but now they're they're encamped. And so that created this sort of block of people who can then challenge the city to like – make greater gains for them. And so I feel like any of the people that made the choice just to stay in that encampment Mm -hmm. to – Instead of like finding a, a more comfortable place to be that's a little safer and out of the way, but they chose to be in this massive encampment to like leverage that to raise their voice against these things around them that need to be addressed. I think anytime we do that where we sacrifice uh, the privileges and comforts we'd otherwise have um, in order to raise the issue so that people have to look at it. Like what yeah. prophets do is they make visible things that our society tries to make invisible. So there's all kinds of great examples. And anytime we do that even a little bit, we're being prophetic. And uh, if we do a lot of it, eventually they'll try to kill us. That's kind of the, that's the moral of the story mm-hmm. of the prophets. <laughs> Be wary but what everyone, you wish for, because they're going to, they're going to come at you. But, ev- but everyone can take the little steps. Um, and then some people take even more and more steps. And if you take enough steps, you start becoming a, a, a clear threat to the system. So the encampment that you referenced, is that was that legal when they did it? Like, is it against any ordinance to make this encampment? And I have to assume they're getting power and infrastructure from somewhere. So, is that a legal gathering, or is it something that now the the city or the state has to deal with because they're not going to move? Like, it's it's illegal, and they I think people were hands off at first, and then as it grew, it became a political issue. Mm-hmm. So that any of the city council, if they wanted to take a uh, if they if they wanted to get rid of them for the sake of expedience or making the this part of South Minneapolis look good, they would get political uh, tossback. So to me, it's like I mean, any good prophet embarrasses the hell out of people in power. Is there a way to do it without breaking the lo- the law? Um, not, and- not not usually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> sometimes like I mean, there are things you can put pressure like. You can put a lot of pressure without breaking the law, but at some point you you're gonna run up against the law because laws laws that we have aren't just made for the common good. They're usually laws exist primarily to protect uh, the powerful and the wealthy. Yeah, the and sta- property. Yeah, yeah, definitely and the status so, quo. 
Yeah. And so if you're going to challenge the status quo, eventually you're going to bump up against the law. Otherwise, it's it falls under like otherwise it's usually just pure charity, which charity is is good and, and alleviates immediate needs. But once you start going from charity to addressing the nature of injustice, like it's like the Dom Helder Camara uh, quote. Um, when I fed people, they called me a saint. But when I asked why they were poor uh, or hungry in the first place, they called me a communist. Mm-hmm. Once you start challenging the origins of the injustice, you usually start bumping up against laws. We would spend the nights and days burning the hours. Oh, I remember as I looked in the mirror, saw I was brave enough this time as I came nearer. So I keep my head up, I keep my head up, I keep my head up. I got the fire, I got the fire, I got the fire, I got the fire this time. I'm taking higher, I'm taking higher, cause I got the fire. fire. So if we think about our political climate and that recording, we're like a week and a half away from the next mid, the midterms elections. And so what are, what are for the next handful of years, what do you think are like the top five things that prophetic voices should be addressing or calling out at least for our nation or I guess for the, not for the church, but well, maybe for the church. Uh, Cause there's some mouthpieces that when I watch them speak, like a Pat Robertson or a Jerry Falwell Jr., I'm ashamed to call them Christian, but I also feel like I have to call them brother, but I'm still greatly ashamed at the words that come out. But what are the top, you think, four or five things that, you know, here's what we need to address and here's why? Well, I think I think a lot of these things are based on your context. So I think a, a prophetic voices are usually very specific. It's I remember reading this article like a decade ago, and it was written shortly after... Oscar Romero was assassinated. And he said that Oscar Romero wasn't assassinated because he called people to love and justice, because everybody says they like love and justice. It's that he was specific about what love looked like and what justice required. And so the specificity of our prophetic voices will change in each place. But there are some general things, like I think, and something that I see because of living in Minnesota is I think. We, those of us who have more privileges, need to lend our voice to the rights of indigenous people for their land, because I think that is um, one of America's original sins. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really a spiritual matter. Like everything that has to do with pipeline resistance is tied up in indigenous rights, because it's almost always when it comes to uh, these oil pipelines, they're going across indigenous tribal treaty lands. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is a, a big one. Um, that understanding the cause of uh, Native Americans and the environment, like the way those two things come together, is a key prophetic issue for the church today. Uh, two, I mean, it's an, it's a clear, obvious one, but I feel like we're losing right now is is immigration. <laughs> so if there's anything that is super biblical, it's supporting the immigrant and the stranger. Mm-hmm. And like right now, our whole like so my wife teaches English to refugees. That's her job. And uh, in that career area, uh, they're having to lay off a lot of people because there aren't enough immigrants to really? 
to have teachers anymore in some places because Trump has basically cut the pipeline. So and to be and so there's I feel not like enough need, people to learn. There's not enough people that even need to learn English. Yeah, I mean it's it's slowed down. Mm. And it's not like there's it's not like there's thou it's not like there's tons and tons of people in the ESL industry, like compared to other types of teachers. It's not like uh, it's not like you know, despite what conservative folks want to say, it's not like we have an overabundance of immigrants, mm-hmm. like especially uh, outside of the borderlands. But the way we're treating uh, undocumented people, immigrants, the the children separated from their parents at the border, I mean, that's a crisis. It's not a crisis here, but it's a crisis like throughout Europe and around the world. How do we as the church stand up for people who are have become refugees, largely economic and climate change refugees? That's a, a huge church issue. Mm-hmm. And I don't see the church really talking about it a lot, not at least not in a way where they're offending people enough to <laughs> to lose uh, donation dollars. And they're not. I mean, there just needs to be more energy on that front. So that's like the second one. Yeah. Um, the third one, I think. I mean, this is every major denomination is in the fault lines of this right now. Is how we respond to our LGBTQ siblings. Because right now, again, like Trump is about to – they're trying to redefine what it means to be trans. So they're going to take that definition away. And so there won't be any sort of legal status for trans people in this country. I read that. Something about you must be assigned gender A or B at birth. Is I feel like that's what I read. But to be fair, I only read the headline. And so if that's what you're referencing, yeah, I didn't read the full article. Um, which I know my – so my wife is a nurse and I've asked her before – and it has a word, but there's a way to be born where basically, you know, hey, Mark and your wife, you've got to figure it out right now. This kid was kind of born in between, so intersex is usually choose. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm not good with the medical words. Um, but and I asked her, I was like, how often is that? She's like, it's not that it's common, but it's not that it's uncommon. Like it it happens, and then usually, you know, when they hit puberty. 50% of the time they're wrong. Like sometimes these, these poor kids, they, you know, they chose wrong um, or they chose right. But I, I can't see how that can even be close to humane, much less right in any thought process like that. Oh, and especially like with people that who are assigned female at birth and chromosomally and in terms of their sex, they're female, but realize that they, that they're trans. Like, so, uh, the reason – so if you want to look at homelessness rates or suicide rates or murder rates, all those populations – all those rates spike if you're trans, especially like the most – one of the most murdered groups of people in this society are trans women, people that were assigned male at birth and are female. And almost all the frust- – like the hatred about these groups of people come from religious origins. Mm-hmm. It's like a religious thing. And so like one thing we did, like here's an example of I feel like what something we did that tried to be prophetic is uh, a lot of folks in uh, my community, um, including my coworker at CPI, Center for Prophetic Imagination, and my intentional community are trans. And uh, a lot of churches out there, and I understand why this is, uh, a lot of churches out there theologically don't believe it's okay to be gay, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to seem like dicks about it. So what they do is they say everyone's welcome and they like really try 
their best to include everyone, but then they, behind closed doors, they're like, well, if you're gay, um, we're not going to let you do anything in the church besides maybe we'll let you be a member. Mm -hmm. And so that seems kind of compassionate if you're conservative about it, because it's more than what people used to do. But if you're, um, imagine going to a church for a few years where you think this is my family and my forever home, and then you find out you can't teach Sunday school because you're gay, and mm -hmm. you thought for the last few years that they loved you for who you were. Now, so we did this action outside of this church, uh, Wooddale Church in Loring Park, Minneapolis, where we just held a sign that said, your queerness is made in the image of God, and we offered communion to folks that were coming out of church. And... Um, a lot of people thought we were like out of our minds because they thought the church was really affirming of LGBTQ folks. Um, and I remember this one person was arguing with me like, no, we're an affirming church. Meanwhile, like 10 steps away from me, someone was calling my friend Marty, who was in drag at the time, an abomination. Like someone from that church was like saying they're going to hell. And so all I had to do, and they started saying, no, we're an affirming church is point. Yeah. You see, <laughs> you see your boy over there? <laughs> Real your boy. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. And so I feel like the church needs to be honest. Like we need to be honest about how we stand on this. And those churches that are affirming uh, or celebrating of uh, queer folk need to really put their money where their mouth is. They need to invest time and energy into uh Queer homeless youth, which is a huge percentage, like just tons of homeless youth are homeless because they were kicked out of their homes, the religious homes, because they are they came out. So these are like crisis level issues within the church mm -hmm. that we need to start taking a painful stand on, even if we lose donations. You know, yeah. that's that's what keeps people from making the hard the the hard choices is they're afraid of losing donations. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it's and you know, Jesus had lots to say about that, I think. <laughs> uh yeah, so that leads me. So one of my favorite I don't want to say meme, um, but I enjoy when uh specifically the Center for Prophetic Imagination on Facebook it, it and it's gotta be you. I can't think that anyone but you because they sound like your voice or the pictures seem like you. I'm the I'm the primary meme generator. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so it was. It's basically a painting that I'm sure someone in the Renaissance era did of Jesus basically flipping tables in the temple, and the words were Jesus didn't get mad because the temple was being desecrated. He got mad because the poor were being desecrated. But the way that you hear it preaches, it's about the money. You did it wrong. You're buying lambs. You you got the wrong stuff. And that's and and as I watched that devolve into people arguing about semantics of language. Yeah. And I think it was even you that came in at the end and said, so you're arguing about the verbiage, but you're fine with the image. How is this not, how are you not seeing the hypocriticalness? Is that a word? Hypo that is a Hypo word. Hypocrisy. There it is. I did it. You did it. <laughs> yeah. I'm taking it. I'm going to edit it like I said it. But I, I <laughs> right. see that often in what you, and I see that often in what you post and what the, the CPI posts of, of just the right amount of, the right amount of, I don't know that I want to read that. Um, so I guess my question is, with that in mind, how do we evaluate things so that the the voices that we need to hear aren't just mixed into the loudness of the world? Uh, so the, it's just not a cacophony of sound. It's just overwhelming. How do we filter out for voices as we read them, as we see them, as we hear them? How do we discern that? Like how do we How do we get to the meat of what we need to be hearing? not what we want to be hearing. 
Yeah, you know, I don't know. Like, the, I wish I knew the answer to that. Because here's the thing, like, I have to remind myself almost every day when I'm encountering people online that seem just bizarrely extremist from my perspective, I, I remind myself they're actually technically mainstream. I'm the extremist. Like, people that believe that Hillary Clinton ran an, uh, a child pornography ring a child prostitution ring underneath a pizza place. Oh, Pizzagate, yeah, which is yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, there are more people that believe that than think like I do. Mm. Like I, that's statistically likely. So, like, I have to remind myself. <laughs> and this is the reason this is problematic and hard is like because the the content being generated by uh, hate mongers. I mean, technically they're hate mongers. They're selling hateful things. Uh, they have more money and resources, and they sell more books. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like when, whenever I feel discouraged that no one's listening to what I'm trying to tell them, I'll go and look up the Amazon sales rank of the people I uh, most admire. And some of the greatest towering people, the most prophetic and amazing voices, even the books written by Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. don't sell. Like people aren't – we get fooled into thinking that uh, – People are listening to reading The Violence of Love by Oscar Romero or The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone or any of these great, amazing books. Dorothy Day, William Stringfellow, uh, Howard Thurman, all these amazing things that have changed my way of looking at. All those things put together don't sell as much as one Joel Osteen book. (laughs) So like, you know, this is why I've got to have like this, you know, I don't know if we're going to make a difference but we gotta we gotta keep fighting for the truth i would think that we have to because if if i look back at history maybe it's only in death that difference is made because martha the king obviously made a difference because we still talk about him jesus obviously made a difference because the church in dorothy day i mean so we still talk about those people and obviously their words still have great impact uh but people seem to only bring them out of the cupboard when there's an emergency and we need to feel better about the pain, you know, well, after, after a mass shooting, we'll talk about, you know, uh, there's that badly paraphrased Martin Luther King quote about, you know, darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can or something like that, which you know, people seem to only bring it out when it's convenient. Um, but they're yeah, still or, spoken about. Yeah. They, or we, we bring out the, the safe quotes, like the long arc of justice, Mm-hmm. Uh, of history of Ben's justice, which everyone, no one would disagree with that. Even like fascists would say, yeah, we need justice. And so the long arc of the history, like, <laughs> and then you get people that co-opt. Like, so um, I'm, this is my favorite example of Rush Limbaugh, like a decade ago, uh, said on his radio show that he was the, he basically was the inheritor, the person keeping Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy alive. Oh. Right. Uh <clears throat> So you, you have the, by what metric? So we, <laughs> how do, how do you, by how do by you, his own metric, but tons of people <laughs> agree with that, huh? Right. So so these figures get co-opted, or like sometimes it's severe, like the the Rush Limbaugh example. Sometimes it's more subtle, like the reason that Dorothy Day, who was an anarchist, uh, who fed people and protested things. The reason that the Catholic Church, the bishops, wanted to make her a saint was because she also was pro-life, and so they wanted to make her a pro-life like saint, 
right? Which wasn't the main thing about her message, but they found it useful to it. So this is what happens is uh, we misquote, we appropriate, we misdirect. And so, you know, most people don't know the harder things that Martin Luther King Jr. said. So I don't know that full quote. You said it's it's misappropriated or misquoted. What is the full quote? Talking about the arc of, of what is it? Do you no, know? That's, that's the quote. He's talking about that. But like, if you just take it in isolation, you'd think that that just applies to whatever your, any old definition of justice is. But Martin Luther King Jr. had a clear vision of what a, the beloved community looked like. And that's part of why he got killed. So like, he talked about, frame that what is that what is the difference for that because i agree with you like for nazis a justice is this for uh you know dictators a, a justice means something different shoot for a uh, white guy in the middle of virginia justice is different for uh you know african-american justice is different for that poor guy that just immigrated from canada because he wanted to get a job and then tariffs happen justice is yeah. different it's um, different so for, for how did junior yeah. like he so you saw him a race and people hated him for it but then uh when he took a stand a Almost a year to the day, I think it might have even been his a year to the day before he was assassinated, he gave his speech, I think it was called On Vietnam, and he came out against the Vietnam War, and he named the giant triplets of evil, uh, militarism, uh, economic exploitation, and racism. And so he started to move beyond talking about ending segregation, and he wanted to end to the war, and he wanted to start organizing. He started organizing the Poor People's Campaign, and he wanted blacks and whites and people of all races who were experiencing poverty to create a permanent encampment in Washington to declare economic human rights so that, to eradicate poverty. Mm -hmm. and so, And he was a socialist. Like he was – Martin Luther King Jr. was a socialist, <laughs> and he saw that the Gospels supported his socialism. But no one ever talks about Martin Luther King Jr., the socialist. What we do is we have Colin Powell on MLK Day talk about how uh, <laughs> America is the great place where uh, people are equal. And so you have this man of the military commemorating uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day as though he doesn't represent one of the great evils hmm. that Martin Luther King talked about. I'm realizing now I don't know enough about Martin Luther King Jr., not even nearly enough, which – it's probably my fault. I'm going to blame it on the schools, but it's definitely probably probably now my fault. It it might have been their fault, but it's now probably mine. I mean, it's not it's not well. I mean, I'm sure you could have done more reading, but here's the thing: churches don't preach uh, preach from what Martin Luther King talked about in his great sermons. Uh, the schools don't talk about Martin Luther King Jr. except for the most antiseptic ways. The quotes you see on TV, like no one would know. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to have enough wherewithal to say, I think they're keeping things about Martin Luther King Jr. for me. So I'm going to go take the effort to go read through some stuff written in the 50s uh, that might be a little hard for me to process. Like it shouldn't be up to individuals to figure this stuff out. Yeah. This is, this is where the church has failed is we don't, cult, we don't cultivate prophetic voices. We tend to silence them until they get so loud that we can't ignore them anymore. Say that again. We tend to silence prophetic voices until they get silence. So loud that we can't ignore them anymore. I don't understand that. That oxymoron breaks my breaks my brain. So how do I silence something so that it's so loud that I can't hear it? No, we silence it until it gets so loud that we can't ignore it anymore. So like once uh, a movement oh, starts, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I miss. I was mishearing what I thought you were saying. I was. No. And so uh, this yeah. is what churches. This is the main. This is what our institutions do. Like, and I'm not anti-church. Like mm -hmm. I. I believe that the church at its best is a movement, but institutions tend to want to preserve themselves 
even at the expense of the individuals in the institution. I mean, institutions want to maintain and survive, yeah. um, and they make comp- compromises for that. So they're going to want to silence voices that disrupt and uh, make their survive, threaten their survival. But then when a, a voice gets loud enough, they'll like feel like, oh God, we have to do something about this, or it could ruin everything. As I've, yeah, as I've talked with other pastors and theologians, but mostly pastors, I find when I can get them away from their congregations, most of the time they say, if I do my job really well and I get you in a healthy place, you'll stop coming to church, which is the problem. And and so I don't, there's a part of them in the back that they can't say that out loud. And they also have to really hold back from preaching truth because if they do it well, I'm called to leave that church and do something. Like I'm called to go up to, uh, I think it's one of the Dakotas right now where they're trying to make it where Native Americans can't vote. Like I'm called to go leave and do something. And I don't know the ins and outs of that, but I'm called to now pick up and go do this because that's that's what you should do. Um, And there's fear that if they do that, well, the same fear that I talked about at the bank. Like if I do it and I do it the way that I'm supposed to do it, well, I'm... I'm going to lose the house, you know, I'll declare bankruptcy. (laughs) I don't know. There's, there's a tension. There's a definite tension. No, and and here's the thing. Like, I don't, you know, maybe it'd be good, but I don't assume that it'd be good if everyone, all of us who have a conscience and convictions basically became destitute overnight. Like, I'm not sure that would do it, but here's the thing. Like each of us, you working at a bank, me trying to figure out how to make a living with a nonprofit, um, all of us, the church should be a place where we can start discerning with other people of how we ought to live individually and collectively to challenge the things we see around us that bring death to people's souls, right? But the churches are increasingly not the place for that. In some ways, they're the least safe place to do that. So this is why like, Black Lives Matter was formed by predominantly queer women of color, queer black women who were no longer safe feeling in their churches and had to find spirituality somewhere else. And they had to stay black lives matter came from that. Any opportunity for the church to become a a nourishing source for that movement um, early on was cut off. And then church people came alongside afterwards, but it's, this is the history of radical movements is we have to fight against the churches. And then maybe later after their, it's, they can't ignore it. They might come along and that's backwards. We should be the places, churches should be the place where this kind of discernment is happening. Yeah. And everyone, yeah, we should be, another another interview said that, that if we're following after the spirit, we shouldn't be looking behind. We should be looking forward and, and we should be setting the example. Like the rest of the nation should be coming alongside us as, you know, oh, they're doing, the church is doing this. We should probably get behind, uh, including people regardless of their gender or their sexual orientation, we should probably do this because the church seems to be the forefront or we, you know, whatever the human rights are or inherent rights that we have. He he was basically yeah. saying, you know, the church should be showing how that looks as opposed to heck no. Mm-mm, yeah. Can't do it. Let's, the, of course the hurricane hit because there's too many gays down there. Like, you know, to invert. Oh, the two. yes. Yeah. So, oh. I don't know. Uh, so what is, so you, a few, maybe a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, you had a conference for the CPI for, for Center for Prophetic Imagination. Kind of what, what does that look like? Do you do that every year? I mean, we've, we've only been around for like now two years as a nonprofit. That was our first conference. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll do more and we're trying to figure out the timing for that. 
And, you know, look, this is here's the thing. Like I grew up among charismatics and Pentecostals and evangelicals. And I still I mean, I'm I'm far left politically. Theologically, I'm not very evangelical anymore, but I still have that same sensibility of like church should be minimalist. Like it should be about people getting together and like all the smells and bells are a distraction from that. Um, so that, but I realized like if I'm going to do this work, I have to connect more with the main line, which mm-hmm. tend to be more progressive. So we had this conference that we aimed for the sweet spot, radical voices, but some voices that I thought like mainline, like Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, blah, 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 would come to. And so we aim for that to try to meet with more of our uh, like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And we invited some folks that <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, all of our main speakers, we didn't set this up, ended up having kind of overlapping messages around how do we deal with hopelessness. And it was real. Like a lot of people felt exhausted after the weekend, but a lot of people felt energized because it was the only time they could really talk honestly about the fact that we feel abandoned. The society is is marching towards destruction and we uh, don't want to believe we can't just believe that somehow God will like to swoop in and make it better. We have to we're in a predicament and we need to have spirituality sturdy enough to see us through this moment. And it was it was heavy and raw and it's not the sort of thing that tons of people would come to. It's not a, it's not a passion conference. <laughs> no, but it was great. Uh, and it was a lot of, you know, a lot of pain. It was a lot of pain and not a lot of trying to organize. What do we do about it? Because part of the problem is like, uh, a lot of people just think they already know how we should respond to stuff. So we're running around like chickens with our head cut off doing busy work without slowing down to discern the moment and making sure our actions count. I guess the question is, how do you do that without becoming another institution, a prophetic institution? Uh, and I mean institution in the way that, like, I mean Southern Baptist or uh, you know, the Presbyterian Church of America or the Catholic Church. Like, how do you do that without becoming, especially because I see it now, I see progressive Christians becoming just as tribal as what they're calling against from the evangelical right. So how do you do that prophetically without becoming what you're prophesying against? That's a good question. I don't know. Like it it happens. (laughs) Institutions happen. And I don't really think we can, if we start fooling ourselves into thinking, well, we're not going to create an institution, then we're going to just act like we're going to be pretending that we're not in institutions when we are. I think the, I feel like what needs to happen is we need to keep investing in movements that happen uh, and not and be okay with the things we start dying. We have to let mm-hmm. things die. I mean, because they the, at the at its heart, an institution is a group of people that didn't aren't willing to let their thing die. That's what an institution is. So start something and and see the work through maybe have a vision at the beginning of this is what success looks like or as close as we can get to it. And when we reach this, we're done. Let it go and let make sure the resources kind of go. It's like the go back into the compost. Hmm. So don't make an endowment fund to continue to pay for that for 250 more years. No. And that's hard because like, here's the thing, like you got to do a little bit of that. Like, cause I want to be able to, I don't want to end up, I'm not over, I'm not exaggerating. And I say like, unless I figure out a way to sustain stuff, like it's possible 
that uh, I will retire into government housing. Like I don't have retirement and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you gotta, you have to have some of that because the church is broken. Like in a in an ideal world, if you decided like, oh, I have this vision of what I need to do, but I'm a banker, and if I don't, <laughs> I need to do it. But if I do that, I'll end up homeless. Then the church should say, no, we got you. Mm. You might not make as much money, but we got you. But the church doesn't do that. So what it ends up doing is putting the burden on individuals to be heroic and then be cut off. So the best you can do is try to make some sort of relationship with churches or institutions to keep yourself going. Realize that it's a little bit compromised, like in the scheme of things. Yeah. But but you can't be so beholden that you're, you care more about making sure uh, <laughs> the nonprofit exists or the church exists. Um, make that more important than the work. Yeah, And that's always hard. This is where discernment as a practice, like as a spiritual practice, needs to happen, and it rarely is practiced or supported by the church. Like how many times – it'd be great if you had a church meeting like – about, hey, we have this funds, like, maybe we should talk about, maybe we should just sell the church and stop being a church because there's these needs in the neighborhood. Like, <laughs> that's, no one would ever take that seriously, but like, why not? Business meeting over and we didn't even vote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, so my pastor and I, uh, mostly him, but he's taken some of the content from this show and we've had a conversation over the course of six weeks at church. And last night we talked about... Um, Gratitude, uh, taken from a conversation I had with Diana Bass about uh, an economy of grace. And we talked about um, making um, compassion and gratitude and uh, making that a, a scarcity, like you have to earn it or a quid pro quo. And, and Diana argues that, you know, in, in God's economy, or if the church is doing the economy right, and she references Martin Luther King, that if we can learn to just freely give at the table, just bring what you have, it could solve so many, so many theodicies. It would solve, you know, hunger. Yeah. It, well, it could solve so many theodicies. Yeah. Um, and then we talked about that, you know, hey, the people that are here, how does that sound? And the word that came up was, well, that sounds socialist. And everybody was like, but it also sounds biblical. But mm-hmm. it sounds socialist, <laughs> and, I, and so everybody was in just just this horrible tension. To me, this is a great pastoral question: or how do we begin to be so free in our ability to talk about money that it's possible within a church for someone who makes three hundred thousand a year and someone who makes thirteen thousand a year to actually be facilitated into figuring out how to share resources so that they both live. So, so, that they bo- so that they both make a hundred and seventeen and a half thousand dollars a year, or maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's like, well, maybe that person should make thirty thousand, and then the other person is like, well, it's still better. Like we we don't even get that far. Mm. Um, but it's because it's so taboo to talk about money, and there's such an entitlement. It's funny we use entitlement in a, as a negative word in our society to talk about poor people, but it's the rich. They feel entitled because they they somehow bought into this lie that they earned it. Mm-hmm. So somehow, and it's it's bizarre to me, like how a the, like Protestants, evangelicals, will talk about how God's grace is unmerited favor. You don't do anything to earn His free gift, but we weren't willing to start thinking about like what does it mean if you apply that logic to economics? Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden, like I don't earn my salvation, but I did earn all this money because. <laughs> Because capitalism is pure, it's neutral, it's natural, and it, uh, and I happen to work harder and be smarter than you. Do you think 
and this is not theological rated, but I feel like you have to have an opinion. Do you feel like capitalism will break in our lifetime and that the youth of America will basically go, we're so tired of this crap, we're changing it? Or will that never be allowed to happen? And I'm not arguing that it should. I don't know that I'm educated enough in the economics of both sides to make a cognizant. I know what my personal inclinations are, but I'm no economist. Do you do you think somehow in the future, just from the voices that you hear and the people that are around you, that it's just going to change? Or we'll still be pissed off 80 years from now? You and I will be dead, but my kids will be pissed off. I think it's capitalism is already broken. And I think there are already a lot of uh, younger generation people who are trying to, ooh, like, there's already a movement happening, like, and it's growing. But the problem is uh, we've enslaved them to debt. Like, this is what, like, if, if you have someone indebted to you and you, they can't, like, have their own self-determination, there's, they're not, there's not a lot of freedom in their actions. And so I think the system right now is exists. We have a hyper debtor society, the economy has moved to a gig economy so that uh, the younger generation never has enough freedom of resources and time to actually start challenging this stuff. And I think that's where we're at. I think the reason that uh, the gap between the rich and the poor is so vast and it tends to fall on increasingly on generational lines is because this is what happens when capitalism is broken and they want to silence the younger generation. So I don't know, like wh- whether or not they rise up and overthrow or something. I don't know if that'll happen, <laughs> but it's already broken. I hope. I mean, I hope for a nonviolent revolution against capitalism. I think it's more likely that there'll be some sort of violence, um, and that's sad. And I think they'll only. When we look back, I don't. I don't blame the people who take up arms. I blame the fact that the church, which there's two billion of us, couldn't like the word term is prefigurative politics. We couldn't put this in action enough ourselves to show the world how it could go. And so our lack of prophetic imagination, mm-hmm. our lack of political will brought about, brings about violence. It's kind of like when the church stood by and did nothing, eventually it caused Hitler to rise to power. Yeah. Right. So it's on us right now. Yeah. The church needs to, church needs to, sh- you know, show up. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, I hope we do. I think they will. I hope they do. Well, I know my son probably will because I'm hopefully not indoctrinating him, but hopefully influ- influencing him. Um, final words, Mark. What would else, sure. anything that I didn't touch on that you're like, here's what people need to hear before they turn this off? Here's This is where like people are like, okay, I don't know what to do with any of that. I think every church where there's at least two or three people who generally agree with what I'm talking about, you need to start just meeting together, and I'm going to get old school. Start praying and asking God, what should we do? And if any two or three people just need help figuring out, like, how do we begin, I will respond to your email to help you figure out and discern what's next without, like, just telling you what I think you should do. I'll help you discern. Yeah. This is my work. Like, I want to support this and I think it has to. The idea that we somehow are supposed to, as individuals, put pressure on our church to do the right thing—that's not going to work. We need to start organizing with people that are like-minded, even within our churches, and start trying to figure out what does this look like. Yeah. And yeah. so that's my final message. Yeah. Well, that's good. Start start where you get start where you're at with what you got. So how do they email you? Where do they do that at? Where do they get in touch with you at? 
I mean, if you go to the Center for Prophetic Imagination, look that up on Facebook and send a message that way, I'll get it. Also, I'm on Facebook, Mark Van Steenwijk. Just look me up on Facebook and zap me a message and we'll go from there. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Mark, for your time this evening. real honest with you i still don't know how i sit with this conversation with mark i don't understand in my brain still that last question that i asked how do we how do we uproot a system without becoming the next institution and i'm willing to wrestle with it it's worth wrestling with the future of a lot of things i believe hinge on that question and and that's the question that has always been there it's a question that jesus modeled and the price is very high and it's uncomfortable and that sucks engage with the center for prophetic imagination i follow mark on facebook he posts some some very thought-provoking articles if you like the type of conversation that we had today you will really enjoy what happens there on social media and and take him up on his offer if you feel called to do this type of searching and conversation at a local level email mark you'll find that link in the show notes on how to reach him so i hope you'll do that Today's music was provided with permission by artist built by Titan. You'll find links to all of his music in the show notes and as always, the the tracks from today's episode. Uh, And as with every prior episode, uh, it has been added to the best playlist on Spotify, the Can I Say This at Church playlist. I'll talk with you next week. And that was love.